Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed as we welcome you along to the programme and if the RTE bosses thought by issuing this statement yesterday that they were going to take the heat out of the Ryan Tuberty uh, payments story, um, they have been sadly, sadly uh, mistaken even though the one thing that they did do yesterday with the statement was they very much have pointed the finger of blame at the now former Director General D. Forbes and sort of I was listening to it and reading down to the statement thinking goodness me has D. Forbes been thrown under the bus it was a lengthy statement I think around about eight uh, pages and it showed the broadcaster repeatedly caved in to pay demands from Ryan Tuberty's uh, agent at a time when they were looking at pay cuts you know right across the sector it really looked like that Ryan Tuberty's agent was not going to cave in he was you know he was sticking to his guns and I suppose some would say isn't that what an agent is meant to do meant to get the best package that they can get for the person they are representing and the credibility of RTE's management's claim that only D Forbes could have known that publicly declared pay figures for the star were understated is said to be a central line of questioning at the Oireachtas Committee meeting. This is the media one that is happening uh, today. Members of the Oireachtas Media Committee will question RTE executives and those that were speaking up last night were certainly unimpressed with the version of events that have been presented to them uh, so far. But I think the big problem about today's Oireachtas Media Committee and tomorrow's PAC uh, Committee uh, meeting is who's actually going to turn up. I know for the PAC, 18 people have been asked to attend. We know that D Forbes already uh, is not going to go. As of now, there's only two have confirmed their attending and that's the interim Deputy Director Adrian Lynch and the Chair Zuni Rally. Uh, they both confirmed they will attend the Oireachtas uh, Media Committee meeting today. But we saw Sheehan Nirali on the 6-1 News on Friday. I mean, she only took up that position as chair of the RTE board last November. So she basically, you know, didn't know anything because she wasn't there at the time. So I don't know how much information she and the interim Deputy General, how much information they're going to be able to give to the Oireachtas Committee uh, members today and how annoyed will the members be if nobody else uh, turns uh, up 
the chair of the Public Accounts Committee who are holding their meeting tomorrow said the claim that Dee Forbes was the only person who knew about the hidden payments to Ryan Tuberty uh, was absolutely ridiculous. Deputy Brian Stanley uh, who was the chair of the of the PAC um, he, he said that the Grant Thornton report an RTE statement released yesterday showed that other people had knowledge of the payments. He said the idea that Dee Forbes uh, was in her office at the top of the tree and could move €345,000 around without the knowledge of people down along the chain or other heads of sections of RTE. He said that's absolutely uh, ridiculous. Numerous people from the station's financial and legal department were involved in negotiating Ryan Tuberty's pay deal. But yesterday, the statement that came from the RTE board squarely blamed D. Forbes for the debacle. And of course, that came out on the day that uh, more than 100 staff picketed uh, RTE yesterday. And if you saw any of the reports of that protest and that picket yesterday, there was so much anger there yesterday by the staff of um, RTE. RTE also said there was no illegality involved in the €345,000 euro, undeclared payment. So there's nothing uh, illegal in what was done and in Ryan Tuberty receiving that uh, money. Documents released by RTE say there was significant pushback by the broadcaster against Ryan Tuberty's agent during the discussions that led to the station then guaranteeing this extra €75,000 payment on top of his salary in the event that a sponsor was unwilling to pay it. When the commercial partner, as we know, Reynold, pulled out, Ryan Tuberty's agent, Noel Kelly, came chasing the payment from RTE and the RTE handed over to €75,000, so €150,000 in total. Fianna Gael TD, Alan Dillon, said the fact that RTE agreed to underwrite a commercial pay deal with Reynolds, despite the fact that car sales were falling off a cliff edge right around the world because of the global pandemic. He says it's astonishing, which is a point I hadn't thought about, but it's a very valid point on behalf of Alan Dillon. Labour Senator Marie Sherlock said she was alarmed at RTE's statement because the idea that only D Forbes knew the full picture, she says that's simply not credible. The RTE's interim deputy uh, Deputy Director General, who I mentioned, Adrian Lynch, who's going to attend the Media Access Committee today, he said no member of the RTE Executive Board other than D Forbes had all the necessary information in order to understand that the publicly declared figures for Ryan Tuberty could have been wrong. And I suppose the other thing that I felt reading down to the statement yesterday and, you know, listening to other people's views on this particular issue is what about Ryan Tuberty and is Ryan Tuberty to blame in uh, any way? And I suppose what I really got thinking about when I saw how hard his agent went in to go for extra money for him, there is one question that I think is Ryan Tuberty did have uh, choices at the time and and he still is he's the highest earner at the National Broadcaster and if you break it down Ryan Tuberty earns twice what the Taoiseach of this country uh, earns so he had a choice that when his agent was going in to negotiate his contract he could have said look I am on a really really decent very generous salary 
let's leave it at that. We don't need to do, we don't need to go for any more money and we certainly don't need to go for any very complicated deal of how I'm going to get extra money. But he made the choice not to. So does he have to answer uh, for that uh, as well? And particularly, you know, at a time when you had the hundreds of ordinary workers at RTE, the ones that we saw picketing the Montrose studio yesterday and they picketed some of the other studios, the regional studios around uh, the country as well. And you could see some of them were absolutely in tears. And I thought, you know, we were seeing faces that we rely on when we watch the news at six or at nine, when we're, you know, trying to get the latest on a story. Uh, These are the people who report on various things that are happening around the country and we rely on them for the for the information. And to see some of them upset, it really was um, hard, uh, uh, hard uh, to watch. So, you know, Ryan Tuberty could have said no you know, I have enough because he would be aware that, you know, people working on his various programmes wouldn't be getting very well paid. He would have been aware that people working on his programmes would have been taking pay cuts or would have been working with equipment that wasn't up to up to scratch. I mean, to hear somebody who's been standing at their desk for the last six weeks because the chair has been broken and every time they go looking for a new chair they're told we don't have any money uh, to uh, replace it. So he certainly had a choice around looking for extra money and he definitely 100% could have set the record straight when his salary was misreported. Not one year, not two years, year after year, his salary was misreported. He had the choice at that stage to put his hands up and say, sorry now, but I'm actually earning more than that. And he chose not to do it. So does he have culpability and does he have questions to answer? I think he does, but there's no mention of him going before any of the Oireachtas uh, committees. 0818 103 103. It's a story that keeps on giving and certainly a story that is not going away and people simply just not believing what they are hearing. Someone says, Patricia, anyone believing that Ryan Tuberty thought his payment was in line with the public pay, with the published pay uh, amount has very poor judgment and that must be taken into account when being considered for remaining in employment. Hi Patricia hope this message finds you well. It does indeed Good morning to you. I don't blame the RT journalist for going out on the picket line yesterday and being so so angry The Irish taxpayer is being laughed at by the executive and the board of RTE. RTE, D Forbes and Ryan Tuberty should hang their heads in shame. I don't believe a word that comes out of any of their mouths They haven't been telling the truth. Keep up the good work to you and John Paul. Thank you for that from a West Cork listener and says, morning, Patricia. Ryan Tuberty is an absolute disgrace with the money he's been grabbing. Ryan definitely has plenty of questions to answer. The more he earned, it looks like the more he wanted. He would never step foot inside RTE again. And as for that, what staff member would work with him? He should give the money back. The fact he is still silent says that he has plenty to hide. Yeah, I think a lot of people would like to hear from, certainly I'd like to hear from uh, Ryan uh, Tuberty. Uh, Michael says, Patricia, the shenanigans in the RTE debacle keep rolling on and they keep digging the hole deeper for themselves plus the fact that they're turning the general public further away from them as they are so engulfed in their own culture. It's almost impossible to break away from it. Blaming deforms for everything is an age-old trick that really no longer washes. The old crack of everything went into the grave with him doesn't wash anymore. I would love to know how much deforms was genuinely told about the inside of that organisation. Was it a situation of tell her as little as possible as she already knows too much to protect 
are cover up their own shenanigans. She had a mission impossible from day one with that lot, says Michael. I still believe that Dee Forbes should step up to the mark. She should spit it out, warts and all, uh, and do it all in her own time. Furthermore, all the top brass in RTE really should step down, especially while all this is going on because it is going to continue to rumble on. Morris says, thank you, Michael. Morris says, Dee Forbes was too busy buying fancy watches. I don't quite know what the reference to that is at Maura. Jim says, Patricia, there are some great headlines in some of the papers this morning about the RTE fiasco, like RTE through Forbes under D bus and pull D other one. Hard to believe nobody knew other than D Forbes about Ryan Tuberty's pay uh, packet and very convenient now that uh, D Forbes uh, isn't going to attend to give uh, details. I'm not um, I'm not reading out your bit about her sick note, uh, Jim, but all I do know is she has handed in a doctor's certificate and it is to remain confidential the reason why she isn't going to be able to attend, but she has handed in a, a sick note. want to move to a different issue because according to the latest data, Ireland is among the worst in the EU when it comes to pedestrian road deaths. Although we're below the EU average for road deaths as a whole, nearly a third of all those killed are pedestrians. Joining me to discuss the data is Susan Gray of the Park Road Safety Group. Good morning to you, Susan. Good morning. Well, always great to uh, talk to you. What do you believe can be done to make pedestrians safer when out and about? It's shocking to see how many pedestrians are being killed. Also, um, Patricia, passengers have increased the deaths in passengers. We have 14 this year so far compared to eight last year. So overall, we have 87 precious lives lost on our roads so far this year. And that's compared to 76 last year. So we have 11 additional road deaths. Now, we do analysis of Garda figures each month and we send our information to the media. You may have noticed in January, the Irish Times covered our figures showing that in January alone, Patricia, we had 20 road deaths right? Mm-hmm. We looked back over past years to see how they fared to previous years. 2011 was the last January that we had that amount of road death. 13 years ago. Then we went to May last month. We had 20 road deaths in Ireland last month in May. We looked back over the figures. 2016, since we had that level of road death in May. What is going on? The, so it's backwards. Death, it's it's worse we're getting is what you're saying. It really is when you look at figures like that. Um, the Road Safety Authority, the Minister for Transport, the Minister for Justice and Angardi Shihana, they would need to really look and do breakdowns like we're doing of road stats to see where the real problems are lying and see what they can do about it. Do you believe speed, Susan, is still the number one killer? Speed along with drink driving. The two seem to go together. So 
they really, really, it's not our job. We're doing these analysis that RSA should be coming up with. And uh, these are the figures we're coming up with. Um, I think people would be surprised to hear you say uh, drink driving, uh, Susan. I thought we were gone a long way from the culture of drink driving in this country. I thought it was Drink driving and drug driving. Drug driving is coming up top now. When you look at the the figures that the Gardaí put up on Twitter and Facebook, they're continually catching people drink driving, speeding. Now, to go on a different subject, Patricia, you may remember a few years back, the last time you had me on uh, your programme, was to do with learner drivers. Yeah. Now, we know the learners are waiting for months and months to get a slot for a driving test. At the time, you interviewed me when Moya Murdoch, the previous uh, head of the RSA, had said that to tackle the problem of thousands of learner drivers rolling over their learner permit by simply applying for the test, not having to turn up for it, an RSA would renew their learner permit. Thousands were rolling over their learner permit. Shane Ross said it had to be sorted. The RSA told you that they were sending proposals to the Minister for Transportation. I, rem- I remember that. Yes. Yeah. To stop the practice of these people, these learners, simply allowed to roll over. One of their solutions was to make them make it mandatory that the driving test before the RSA would renew their learner permit. And they'd sent proposals on 2013. They put a provision in their road safety strategy strategy to end this practice by 2014. Patricia, that never happened. Then they put proposals and they told you, I think it was 2019, to Shane Ross to end this practice. Nothing's happened, Patricia. You'll be alarmed to know nothing has changed. We are still waiting on them. So, and learner drivers are still rolling over uh, their license. But, but, but then, if if we if we bring that in, and 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 I think you're right, it it should be mandatory and it should be brought in. We need to make sure that the learner drivers that there's enough slots available for them to actually do the test. Yes, Patricia. But we believe that the people, the learners that are simply not showing up for their test, they're creating much of the problems on learners trying to get, to get. Yeah, yeah. And there's no slots there because they've been taken up by these drivers that have no intentions of turning up for their tests. So that, that is contributing to the backlog. Mm. And yet, nothing's been done about blaming it. Tra- nothing, nothing since I spoke to you. All false promises. They were going to do this. They were sending in proposals. The latest is 2024 may be sorted. We believe they're going to maybe increase the the fee to do a test. If you don't turn up, the next one will be higher. But that's money. That's revenue for the RSA. The RSA is pocketing 85 euro per for every driver that doesn't show up for the test. They have to. The driver has to send the RSA. 85 euro to get a slot. The RSA keeps that 85 euro. The driver doesn't turn up for the test, does not give any reason. 
and the RSA renew their permit. That is unbelievable. Yeah, and if they stopped, if they simply stopped renewing the license, that would end that. That would end that practice. Yes, it would end. No, there will be some that cannot turn up. They cancel. That we're not referring to people that cancel their test a week beforehand or so. We're talking about people that simply do not turn up. Who you say have never had intention of going. To take that that test, yeah, do the Gardaí do the Gardaí, um, Susan need more resources when it comes to the road policing units? Yes, they do. The Gardaí commissioner promised that there would be a thousand more Gardaí um, trained this year. That doesn't seem to be going to be possible. But we were we keep asking out of those thousand, even if they do get the thousand mark. How many of them is going on to roads policing? Roads policing figures are down. We need more Gardaí in the roads policing. Because um, particularly when you talk about uh, drink driving and drunk and uh, drug driving, that that does work as a really strong deterrent if people think they're going to get caught. But if people think, are the chances of me coming up against a, a roadblock where they're you know, breathalyzing people, should there's a chance in a million that that's going to happen to me. That's when people will take the risk. Yes, and people are still saying they don't see enough checkpoints. And we need to see that happening. Enforcement, okay. enforcement. And for, yeah. The RSA and need to step up to the plate and help the Gardaí in doing their work. The Gardaí are catching unaccompanied learner drivers on a regular basis. They're seizing the vehicle and they're giving them penalty points. Now, if the RSA insisted that a learner had to sit the driving test before they renewed a learner permit, can you imagine the amount of learners that would try and try, do more lessons, sit the driving test, and get? There would be less learners unaccompanied on our roads that the idea catch. Yeah, because Jenny says she is seeing a number of learner drivers on the roads in her area with no qualified drivers. She said, we definitely need more policing. People are taking the risk. And people are taking the risk. But then if you live in a rural area, uh, Susan, and you need to get from A to B, people will say it isn't always possible to have a qualified driver. There's no excuse. We're talking about lives being lost in the roads here. Do the lessons. Practice, practice, practice. Get your test. You will, there's a long waiting list now, and that's not the learner's fault. That is the RSA's fault. They are not managing the driving test properly. They're not managing the MCT. The MCT waiting list is very long as well. So they need to step up the and ensure that these things that they keep promising over the years, time and time again, all we're working very closely with We will sort the address these problems. There's so many problems on our list, Patricia, that they just keep, as far as we're concerned, they're just kicking the can further down the road and further down the road. And sadly, Hoping, sadly, it's getting reflected in an increase in our road fatalities. That's yeah. that's the, that's the yeah. reality. And just to finish off, Susan, you work with families uh, who have lost loved ones uh, due to a road traffic a- accident. And, and uh, let's, of course, uh, remember your own uh, wonderful uh, husband. One life lost is one too many. Exactly. And when you see them increasing now, 
January 20, May 20, highest in years and years. Like, what's going on, Patricia? So the people that are getting handsomely paid to do these jobs, and it's not ours, <laughs> they need to sort out this mess, do the analysis, delve into the different reasons. Do you know, Patricia, that the RSA, like this year to date, we have 38 drivers that lost their lives, 14 passengers. Now, we only had eight passengers last year, so the passenger figures are coming up too. 21 pedestrians, 14 last year, so it's not only pedestrians that's a cause of concern. 10 motorcyclists, one cyclist and three others, e-scooter, two e-scooter drivers, passengers, and one civilian passenger. Do you know that the RSA each year, the drivers that are involved in fatal crashes, the RSA don't know the status of the driving license or learner permit in some of those cases. Something as simple as that. We asked RSA in 2019 how many learners were involved in fatal crashes that year, how many were unaccompanied. We were told one. We got a spreadsheet from them. And on their spreadsheet, we noticed they had 31 fatal crashes where the status of the driving license or learner permit was unknown. That just beggars belief. So when they told you one, that was the one that they knew of, but they couldn't yes. tell you if there was any more. Okay, listen, I Stop. have to, Sorry. I, I have to wrap Thank it up you. there. Listen, as pleasure as always, and I know we'll speak again. Uh, keep up, you're doing fantastic work at the Park Road Safety Group, uh, and I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for that. Bye. That is uh, Susan Gray, 0818103103. A Killarney listener said, I crossed at a recognised zebra crossing at the church in Ballymakira on Saturday. I went waited for the cars to stop but they didn't eventually cars on my right hand side stopped so I proceeded to walk across the zebra crossing walking across slowly expecting the cars on my left to do likewise but it didn't happen Uh, I went within seconds of being killed it is a 50 kilometre zone if motorists were obeying the speed limit this would not have happened I'm an adult what about a young child who would innocently try to cross and what is a recognised safe place to cross because it is a zebra uh, crossing and that's from a uh, Killarney uh, listener. Thank you for that and uh, glad to know that you were safe. Morning Patricia, regarding pedestrian road deaths, I'd like to say I'm surprised it's not more on the streets. These new pop-up crossings slash ramps I've noticed people just decided the last minute to cross the road and they don't even wait to see if a car is coming in either direction. Also town lighting has been changed in our town where you drive in town at night. It's very dark in areas around the town and that's from a Mitchellstown uh, listener who says uh, P.S. Patricia on the RTE debacle the likes of these people live so far above the rest of us they don't even see that they've done anything wrong. Ireland is not taking the threat of sea levels rising nearly seriously enough despite some towns in East Cork likely to be directly impacted. That's according to Fianna Gael Cork Eastall Deputy David Stanton who joins me to discuss 
this issue in more detail this morning. Good morning to you, David. Good morning, Patricia. Now, what we're talking about here is uh, climate change. Do you believe other countries are taking the issue much more seriously than we are here in Ireland? They are indeed. Um, um, obviously, we would, we would talk about the Dutch who have been fighting this for an awful long time, but they established um, strategy groups quite a number of years ago now looking at this issue of sea level rise, which is totally different to coastal erosion or coastal change. What I'm talking about here is the glaciers melting in the Antarctic and in, the Green, and in Greenland, and as a result, and glaciers in other parts of the world as well, where you have, you know, higher temperatures leading to this melting, and then the sea level rising. And a lot of papers have been done on this, a lot of studies have been done on this, and it's actually accelerating at a fairly serious rate. Now, I've, I've looked at... Um, some maps where they predict where this will go and when you look at these maps you begin to realize that yeah this is going to have a big impact sooner than we think maybe in our lifetime i thought maybe i wouldn't live to see it but maybe i might if i live long enough in the next 20 years we could actually see uh, serious changes around our coastline where the sea rises and doesn't go back down again now if you think about it a lot of our infrastructure a lot of our towns are built on the coastline fairly low lying a lot of infrastructure roads rail even Power station generation, if you take down a header, is on the coastline. So all of those places are going to see changes. And what I've been calling, now I know we have a National Coastal Change Management Strategy Steering Group and a Climate Change Advisory Adaptation Committee. Now, they are due to report pretty soon. But I just feel we need to really take it, get hold of this pretty soon. And we need to say to people, look, you either have to move to higher ground or we need to put up some kind of defences or barriers to, to, to mitigate against the danger yeah. of the sea rising. Yeah. And like we're an island nation, so while obviously your concerns would lie in the, in the East Cork uh, area, this will affect any town or any area or any business anywhere around the coast. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the map even last night, knowing I must come out there, Patricia, and Wexford will be badly affected. Kilmore, New Ross, Letterkenny, Westport, Tallow, believe it or not, in West Waterford is pretty low-lying. Yall, Balmacoda, Shanigarry, Carrick 2, Little Island, East Ferry, um, Rostellan, Limerick, Innes, pretty, will be pretty badly affected if this comes true. Places like Parky Cueve and the Marina Market and UCC, and I could go on. Yeah. So, so it is, it is going to happen. And what we really need to be doing now is to say, well, what's going to happen? Now, the other thing that comes in here is if and when the sea level rises, people are going to find it very hard to get insurance cover mm. because it, there's no risk. It, 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 insurance covers a risk. There's no risk here. It's going to happen. And other countries in the States and other places have looked at this. And like They say that if this goes as they expect it will, a lot of Florida will disappear. A lot of cities in the, West, in the east coast of America would be in trouble. Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on. So we'll see a movement of people because they'll have to go. The sea comes in and takes over the land. And this is, this is happening as we speak, and it's accelerating. So it's something that uh, I, I, I've raised in the dollar number of occasions with ministers here, and we're waiting for the reports from these two groups that I mentioned to be published, and hopefully then we'll see action. But I, I just these groups were, were put together in a couple of years ago now, and uh, we're still waiting for a response. But yeah, I'm pushing is, it hard. At, is it central government or is it local authority who have responsibility for things like flooding and, and, and our coastal erosion? Well, you see, again, erosion is different and, and flooding is different. This is sea level rise. This is permanent. The sea rises and doesn't go down. And that's the difference. Even when I raised it last week in the Dáil, the minister came in and he started talking about erosion. And I said, no, I'm not talking about coastal erosion. That's a different matter. Now, coastal erosion will occur mm. as a result of sea level rise. 
But when the sea level rises up and doesn't go back down again. So now you're it's saying flood defences aren't even going to work on this one? Well, they could do in, in some areas. It, it depends. Each area is different. And in some areas, flood defences will work. Putting up walls and so on will work depending on where you are. In other areas, people will have no choice but to move to higher ground because the sea will come in and that's it. And there'll be no choice well, but to go. So rather than short-term fixes, it sounds like it's like long-term action. Is what it, we need it, here. It, it is, and you know these things take time to plan, and there's no point in alacorning and wringing our hands when it happens. We we really need to have a plan ready. We really need to be kind of engaging with people and communities. Local authorities have a role to play. Central government has a role to play. The European Union has a role to play. Obviously, we're all working on the whole climate change. We're trying to cut down on emissions. We're trying to reduce greenhouse gases and global warming and all the rest of it, and that's hugely, hugely important. But at the same time. Um, this, this, this kind of carriage left the garage, if you like, and this is moving and, and it is happening as we speak. We've already seen the storms across the world. We've seen the fires at the moment in Canada. We've seen floods. We've seen things happening that haven't been recorded previously. And this is all part of this whole change in our climate. And the sea level rise is another part of that, another consequence of that. Um, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with and and that's why I've been raising it here, because I, I don't want us to sleepwalk into it. I want government. I, I am pushing for these reports to be published, and as soon as they are, we'll be examining them to see what actions need to be taken locally. And some people will have to move. There'll be no choice about that. And it'll be pretty painful when yeah, it happens. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and when we talk about the issue of, of climate change, and it always seems to be when we talk about uh, climate change affecting other countries, but it's not going to really affect us here, or it'll be, you know, it'll be t- tens of hundreds of years before it'll affect us here. But that simply is not true. No, I mean we have seen, you know, fairly severe storms. We've we've had we've seen in, in a number of years ago. We we saw very severe drought across the um, summer where our farmers had to import um, uh, hay from France and so on. And that's all part of it. But the 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 we are, I suppose, looking at where we are at the moment uh, globally. Uh, people have been saying that. You know, continental Europeans will be coming to Ireland on holidays because it'll be too hot in Europe, and they'll be coming here because our our climate will be will be uh, very um, moderate, if you like, compared to what's happening there. If you're talking about temperatures of over 40 degrees, that's very that's unbearable. And we've already seen what's happening in the Horn of Africa. I'm in the Foreign Affairs Committee here. I've, we've seen what's happening out there, where you know the, the land is completely dry. They've had no rain for quite a while. Everything is dying. Nothing is growing, and people have no choice but to move out of there. Uh, because there's nothing there. And that's another consequence of it. And obviously we've seen floods in other parts of the world as well, serious flooding going on. So this is all part of it. But as I said, the, the issue I was focusing on here was the, the immediate issue for us, which is uh, sea level rise and the impact we'll have on our coastal towns and communities, roads, rail, in some places, uh, power stations, uh, houses, factories, and all the rest of it, which are built around the coastline and which will be impacted, and we need to start taking note of that, planning for it, and preparing people for it. Okay, and somebody is saying by text, if this is all down to the Arctic ice uh, melting, can something be done to stop that? Well, funnily, funnily enough, the Arctic ice is in the sea, and that's already that's okay. It will melt, but because it's already in the sea, it doesn't have an impact. It's the Antarctic ice that's the problem, and the ah. Greenland ice, and the ice that's on land, that's the problem. Also, you have ice in the glaciers in the Swiss Alps and other places around the world, which, is, which are also melting. So it's a massive, massive amount of ice in the Antarctic and in Greenland that's going to cause a major, major change. And it has to go somewhere when it melts? When it melts, it goes into the sea and yeah. rises to the sea level. It also changes the actual um, saltiness, if you like, of the sea, which is a, has an impact. And we've already seen reports of, of various... Um, 
you know, marine animals, fish, and so on, and, and, and mammals moving further north because the sea is getting too warm for them further south. Just as I have you there, Patricia, there's one other thing, just some good news. Okay. Mr. Humphreys just announced that €364,000 for 153 projects, in local projects in County Cork under the Community Support Fund. These vary from, you know, €1,000, €2,000, €800, for all kinds of communities across North Cork and West Cork, Cork County, really. It's to do with helping uh, groups uh, to deal with the um, issue of um, um, energy costs. And, uh, you know, it, it'll be welcome community councils and community halls and sports, sporting groups and uh, and so on across the board. Are getting Who have been money. really struggling to pay yeah, huge, yeah. huge electricity and heating yeah. bills. So it's, it's, it's um, I've been looking at it here now and, and um, like, you know, um, Charleville and District Rugby Club, two and a half thousand. Um, Bell and Danny Community Council gets three, three, three thousand four hundred. Um, Liscarle, two thousand um, and, and so on. Okay. So there's a lot of money being given out this okay. morning. Again, All right. That's, down, some uh, yeah. That's some good news. That's some good news. We'll leave yeah. it. Uh, we'll leave it there, uh, David. Thank you for that. All right. Then, and thank uh, you. thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Fianna Gael, uh, Dáil Deputy, uh, David Stant. Uh, with regard to my piece with uh, Susan Gray, we were who was with Park, they're the road safety uh, group, and they're very much made up of people who've lost loved ones uh, due to road uh, fatalities. And you know, we were talking, and I initially asked Susan to join me because they're a third of all the road deaths on our roads are with our pedestrians. But unfortunately, um, when Susan then was outlining the figures, they keep a very close eye on the number of fatalities that happen uh, every month on our road. And unfortunately, this year, there has been an increase on the number of road deaths compared to this time last year. And that doesn't uh, bode well. Now, we're only halfway through the year. What kind of figures are we going to see by the end of the year? And of course, Susan spoke about changes that need to be made to the learner driver permit and the way people can roll over learner pi- a learner permit by simply just applying for a test not turning up and then they get another a learner permit I think it's is it for two years after that and she said something needs to be done about the the numbers of learner drivers on our road Charlie in Whelan says how can parents be expected to accompany their children everywhere in the car when they're on a learner uh, permit because the law states that they must require a full uh, a fully qualified uh, driver but the reality is it simply doesn't work. There isn't always somebody available. And I did put that point to uh, Susan Gray, particularly if you're living in a very rural area. And she said it doesn't matter if you've got a learner driver in the household. They shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car unless they have a fully qualified driver with them. And I agree with you, Charlie. In the real world, that isn't always practical for families. On pedestrians, somebody said half the time where there's no footpath, pedestrians will walk on the wrong side of the road. And uh, isn't isn't the rule if you're out walking and there isn't a footpath, you always face the oncoming traffic? Isn't that the correct way uh, to do it so that you can see what's uh, coming? Uh, this listener reckons out and about and she sees people walking on the wrong side of the road where there is no a footpath. Tina in Banda said, I agree with that listener who contacted you from the Mitchellstown area. Ramps have re- were also recently installed in streets in Bandon. People walk out in front of you and they don't even look. These ramps were introduced to reduce speed. They are not, and Tina wants to emphasise, they are not pedestrian crossings. Uh, A person walked out on me last week and then gave me a right dirty look as if I was in the wrong. Yeah, and I think some of those ramps, it's the way they're painted 
I think they get confused. I think people do think that they are uh, zebra crossings or pedestrian crossings. So people need to be very careful about that. And you're right. And a lot of those ramps have been installed to slow people down, but they're not pedestrian uh, crossings. Listening to your show this morning, I have to point out um, accidents are also caused by people not using their indicators and going around roundabouts completely wrong. And what I'm talking about, says this uh, texter, it isn't young drivers. I'm talking about people who would have their full driver's licence. They're not using the indicators one is very annoying if you're behind somebody and suddenly then they, they break because they're going to go uh, left or right and they don't indicate. That is frustrating. Roundabouts, yeah, how many times have we been on roundabouts and you'll hear somebody being blown off it? There are a number of people, I think, who genuinely do not know how to drive around uh, a roundabout and there are people of a certain vintage who would never have learned how to drive around roundabouts when they would have taken uh, their tests because there wasn't as many roundabouts that are there uh, today. So I think you're right on that. Uh, thank you for your text to 0862103103. And then on a completely different topic, somebody's on uh, to say, hey, Patricia, hope you're well. I am. Thank you for asking. Just a quick message um, and highlight it, please, on the radio. Hope of highlighting it, something might be done. It's the state of the old court graveyard in Donora. It has now gone so overgrown and it is so unkept at the moment. There was a council worker who used to work maintaining this graveyard who used to do a fantastic job, but it doesn't look like there's anyone there working at it at the moment to keep the place nice and tidy. Apart from families themselves doing their own bit to keep their own graves and their own area tidy, nothing else is happening. Now, I'm assuming that the old court graveyard in Donorail is under the control of the council is it if there was once upon a time a council worker I'll get John Paul to send an email out to the council uh, to see is it on some kind of a list and have they any indication of when workers are going to get there to uh, maintain it but there is it's almost disrespectful isn't it if you're going to visit a loved one uh, to find that the graveyard is totally overgrown and totally unkept and actually this listener has sent down a WhatsApp uh, photograph it is well well overgrown it looks to me like it certainly hasn't had any cut this year so far I don't know what was going on last year so I'll get John Paul to send off an email and we'll see if we can get something back from the council on it 0818103103 and then Mary was on to say she was listening to my interview with Anne Hurley yesterday you know the wonderful Anne from Jarleville Anne was outlining the situation that her husband and her son found themselves in their doctor retired which of course doctors are well uh, entitled to retire and they work they work long hard hard hours and no doubt they're counting down to their retirement um, but anyway the problem was in the Charleville area all the doctors lists were full if you were a medical card patient you got nominated a doctor but if you were a private patient which is what Anne's husband and son were and she outlined to us yesterday the lengths that she went to to finally 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 get a doc a GP practice that would take on her husband and son, not unfortunately in Charleville, it's in a day or about a tw- a 20 miles uh, away, but she's just happy that they have a, they've been signed up to uh, a GP. So Mary says, I listened with great interest to Anne talking yesterday. My husband and I are also from the Charleville uh, area. We now have to go to two different doctors in Abbey Field in order to be included on their lists. And may I add, we're delighted to have a doctor to go to uh, when Whenever we may need them. It's still a journey to go, but at least we will be seen. We as well, like as Anne outlined yesterday, are private patients. This is what we get for paying our tax every single week. 
very fed up with the GP service that we now have here in Charleville um, and during your programme and that's from uh, Mary isn't it incredible and to hear Anne uh, saying that when she put it up on a media social media post about the problem she was having uh, with uh, PJ and her son she said you know she got a lot of reaction online from people saying yeah I'm in the same boat as you and she said she's been stopped on the street about it with people like Mary saying yeah in the very same boat going to great lengths to try to find a doctor and yet she was told nobody had complained uh, about it so I think more people need to complain because it certainly looks like Charleville needs to have at least another full GP practice open because of the number of people who don't seem to be able to get a doctor in their own hometown. 0818 103 103 on the RTE slash Ryan overpayment and all of that. Just a sample of some of the calls and texts coming in. Listening to your programme this morning about Ryan Tuberty. I think it's time to abolish the television licence as we seem to be only lining the pockets of the likes of Ryan Tuberty. Um, I enjoy your programme. That's from Evelyn. Thank you, uh, Evelyn. Now, a couple of people, including Tim, says, I wonder how much is D Forbes paid? And somebody else has the same question going, what is D Forbes' current salary? This is Bill in Clonakilty. And also, is she getting paid at the moment? And what is her package for retiring? The scandal is similar to what happened in the FAI and the government needs to abandon the board and start afresh for the public and for RTE workers. Well, we know she's resigned. So if she's resigned, she's obviously not getting paid. But there was only, I think it's the 10th of July uh, was when her contract was over and when she would be officially uh, retired. But so how much does uh, D Forbes earn? These are the figures that I found published by RTE back in 2021. So we assumed that this was the same pay package she was on last year and the same pay package she'd be, be on for half of this year until her retirement. Uh, D Forbes had a basics, has a basic salary of €225,000. She also has a car allowance of €25,000. She has pension contributions of €56,000. So her overall package was €306,000. And obviously from the 10th of July, I'm, I'm assuming she then draws down her salary or draws down her pension. So €306,000 was what uh, D Forbes was uh, earning. Alice in Skibbereen says D Forbes totally hung out to dry. There must be more involved in this and the board are not being truthful. Despite all of the protests and the pickets that were held yesterday, they are still protecting someone or some people internally. Kieran is in Watergrass Hill and said yes, D Forbes is to blame because of the end of the day she signed off on the documents and she was director general so the buck does stop with her however more must have known that this was happening she could not have come up with this all on her own so those around her need to answer questions too along with the board who seem to be too wholesome in interviews on RTE News and they seem to be very fast to point the finger of blame at D Forbes these Arachthus Committee meetings, the one today and the one tomorrow, seems to me to be a little bit like a box ticking exercise. That's from Kieran in Watergrass Hill. William Glamire says, how squeaky clean are our politicians? They are all clean until they're found out. They can still claim vouched expenses. This all needs to change within our public sector. Willie goes as far as to say, cab 
goodness, Criminal Assets Bureau should be called in to investigate uh, RTE. God, that's fighting talk from Willie in uh, Glanmire. And then some of your WhatsApps in on uh, this. Hi, Patricia, regarding the RTE scandal. The focus needs to move away from Ryan Tuberty because the issue is the salaries which RTE offer and agree and not what is sought by a presenter. We might all ask our paymasters for a particular sum of money to be paid, but they can always say no. Personally, I don't agree with RTE's inflated salaries paid on the back of citizens, many of whom are struggling to cope simply with the cost of living at the moment. To that end, I believe the RTE salaries should be capped at €100,000 per year or thereabouts. If presenters want to walk, there are plenty of talented people in this country that could replace them. Therefore, Ryan Tuberty is not the problem. He just happens to have benefited from RTE's flahulic approach with licence payers' money so that they can smugly reflect their upmarket D4 addresses. Hopefully, after the inquiry, RTE will get real. Thanking you, Patricia. That's a, that's a good text. I don't know if the 100,000 they would agree to. I know the Union of Journalists in Dublin were saying that they wanted it capped at the same level as a senior civil servant, which I think is a 230,000 euro a year. I think they wanted it capped at, but this listener says 100,000 would be uh, enough. Would I do it for 100,000? I would, and I take the hand and all off you. Uh, hi, Patricia. Put Ryan Tuberty on the stand. He's probably given the money to his daughters. It's no wonder he retired from the late, late. D Forbes should tell all. They don't care about her. They haven't just thrown her under a bus. They've thrown her under a train, says this um, listener. And Claire Byrne on €280,000 per year. Joe Duffy on €351,000 per year. How in God's name are these payments justified, Patricia? Surely that in itself is a criminal offence. Plus, Dee Forbes isn't helping herself by resigning and then mysteriously not available. Well, she's sick. She, um, it's the reason that she's not attending the Oireachtas uh, Committee meetings. But she's not attending the Oireachtas Committee meetings when people are losing their homes and families are in financial uh, difficulty. Uh, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark for sure. 0818-103-103. John Paul continues to take your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. C103 Jobs. We've got a teleporter driver. It's this one for a construction site in Carrig Tuhill. It's a long-term work for the right candidate. Now, Safe Pass and CSCS card, both essential. Call 86 the Hibernian Hotel in Mallow, they've got a vacancy for a full-time receptionist. CVs, please, for the attention of Tracy. And the email address is info at hibernianhotel.com. Ashgrove Renewables, they're recruiting a sales support administrator for their expanding home energy division. CVs to hr at ashgrove.eu. And a... Full-time internal sales coordinator is wanted to work in Mallow. 
you need to email douglas at acravet.ie. Now you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now it was very positive to hear our newly elected Mayor of uh, Cork County, Frank O'Flynn, say on the programme yesterday that returning derelict buildings back into use in our towns and villages will be one of his priorities for the coming year. So how is the city doing when it comes to the issue of vacant and derelict buildings? Architect and campaigner Frank O'Connor, along with his partner Jude Sherry, have been photographing such properties around the city and they've been doing it since 2020 and I've spoken with them in the past. So we've we've invited Frank uh, to once again join us with an update on the vacant properties in Cork City. Good morning to you, Frank. Good morning, Patricia. Um, You're welcome to the programme. I suppose go back and remind listeners why you and Jude decided to start this campaign. Sure, uh, Patricia. Yeah. So basically, um, Jude, uh, my partner and I, we were living abroad uh, for a few decades and we moved back to Cork late 2018. And I suppose when we came back, we fell in love with the city and the friendliness of the people, but we were shocked by the levels of vacancy and dereliction and the decaying heritage, but particularly in the middle of a housing homeless crisis. So we decided from the start to do some research. And after about 18 months research, we started sharing on Twitter. Uh, actually, three years ago this uh, this week, we started sharing images every day for a full year, a daily dose of dereliction, basically within two kilometres of the centre, showing properties that were decaying or derelict that were being wasted. And this was way to shine a light on the... Uh, levels of vacancy in dereliction in the middle of a housing emergency and also to show what's possible as well. So, yeah, so that's basically three years now. So yeah, I suppose over the last and, three and years. And it's, it's, it's a small enough area and you say it, it, it's just two kilometre radius of the city centre. I mean, you're not out looking at the suburbs. It literally is no. within and around the city centre. Absolutely, Patricia, yeah. So we focused, I mean, at the time, obviously, we were in the middle of COVID and there was 2K restrictions and the 5K restrictions, if you remember all that time. Yeah, Yeah, so yeah, we're also interested very much, um, you know, we're actually, we're not architects, we're actually designers, but we're very interested in the idea of, this idea of a 15-minute city, basically people living nearby where they work and where they shop and where they socialise. And so for us, this kind of idea of a 2K radius was where people like us, I suppose, we'd lived abroad, we wanted to come back and live in an urban environment, we want to be close to everything and we don't have a car. So that was kind of our interest really was like, if we were someone like us moving back to Cork, want to live in the city centre, you know, how would it work for you? And obviously that's so that's why we stuck on into 2K. Yeah, so it's quite a small radius really. So mm. you're, we're kind of coming out from the centre of Ireland, I suppose where the English market is, and you're kind of going two kilometres each direction. And so what we found at the time, which was quite shocking, we found over 700 uh, derelict properties within that radius. Now, at the time, the City Council were reporting 95 and they were having a much wider radius, so they were going well into the suburbs. So, obviously, there was a disconnect there. But for us, I mean, ultimately, in the day, uh, Patricia, it was so upsetting to see people struggling, see families living in temporary accommodation hotels and passive vacant derelict homes every day, meeting people on the street struggling and seeing all this vacancy and dereliction. And like Cork is such a beautiful city, you know, for us, it was all about turning these back into homes and spaces for the community but also it was very much about 
I suppose also the decaying heritage, realizing that we have these beautiful environments. And if we want people to move into our urban environments, we're going to have to do a lot more. And obviously, first thing is to bring those properties back into use. And obviously, as you know yourself at the moment, with the climate crisis getting worse, we're in a resource crisis, biodiversity crisis. It, make, it makes a lot of sense for people to move into these urban environments. But why would you expect people to move in? If there's so much dereliction, so yeah, much and decay. are they in? Are they all in various states of disrepair? There were, there were, yeah. I mean, we started to, to work with. I mean, there's kind of a government land law around since 1990, which is like a dereliction law, and we sort of focused on, I suppose, what was written there in terms of how we described it dereliction to be. So, you know, and obviously thinking about that alone, Patricia, if you think there's been laws in place since 1990, obviously they were there before then as well, but like the most recent was 1990. So you think with that law in place, the idea is if you have a derelict property in Cork City, whatever, you should be paying 7% on the price of the property every year until you bring it back into use. But of course, it, we have a lack of enforcement here, so then that, that law is not being enforced. But yeah, they were in various states of, some are obviously uh, missing roofs and stuff, but some were just boarded up, you know, you could see some could be brought back into use quite quickly. Yeah, they're not so, all like, going yeah. to, yeah, they're not all going to need a huge amount of money or a huge amount oh. uh, of work. And then three years on, Frank, how many of that, roughly 700, how many are in the same condition or dare I even say worse? Yeah, so what we did was we focused on on, on the, so the, 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 we found 700, but the thread, the sort of Twitter stuff, we, we shared about 460. So we focused on those and we, I suppose we re-walked the city over the last few weeks. And Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I take pictures again and map it out. And what we found was of the 460 we had shared, 78% of them are still derelict, which is yeah. about 360 properties. So, so... So like 78 percent were still derelict, um, and um, about 35 were bought back into use, which is 7.6 percent, and then there was about 13 vacant, 13 vacant or 2.9 percent vacant, which are ready to occupy. So, based on those figures, right, you take a 40 years to bring more back. If you if you stay with this pace, it'll be another 40 years before all those come back into use. Oh, and I suppose okay. the important thing to remember as well is during the last three years, while thankfully some are coming back into use, there are more 
which are going into dereliction. Because we didn't actually, even though like it's a large number within the two kilometre radius, there was a lot of properties in the city centre we didn't share at the time because we felt, look, it was COVID, owners might be going into difficulty. We understood that. So so obviously the numbers could have been much higher at the time. And obviously a lot of those properties now that were decaying at the time are actually gone further down the line as well. And really, look, it's such a lost opportunity, Patricia. You know, the most sustainable building is existing. You know, what we have at the moment is the buildings we should be working with. They should be our priority. But now, there are the grants is- There are grants now available for vacant and, and derelict properties. Do you think that, that there they, are, yeah. they will help? Yes, definitely. And there, there's been a huge take up for those. And it's definitely helping from people we've spoken to that there is a huge interest in that. So that's a big step forward. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of all happened as a result of our work. And we're really pleased about that. I mean, there needs to be a lot more support, but that's a great step forward. And like I said, the, I think the number is already rising in terms of demand for that. So that will help. But I suppose culturally, too, I suppose that we need to make a step change as well. You know, we need to sort of, I suppose, recognise that these buildings are very important from a, from a housing point of view, from a community point of view but also from a sustainability point of view. And I suppose we need to move a lot faster because a lot of these buildings, okay, some, uh, Patricia, would be privately owned, of course, yeah. but also many are, are owned by the state, you know, many are owned by the council. I mean, it's a council property, for example. We live in the Shandon Blackpool area, myself and Jude. But, like, basically, Stone's Throw from where we live, there's a council property that's been into five years now. So, like, that's council-owned. Now, thankfully, they are working in, in the last few months. But we're hoping that will come back into use in the next few months. But, like, five years for council property. I mean, you, you can't really justify that, you know. And it's, again, it's in a location where people could be close to schools, close to shops, close to work and stuff, you know. And so we all lose out. And obviously, you know yourself, the impact of their election on, on people who live nearby, you know, makes your well, I always feel think, less Well, I always think, Frank, it is really, really unfair on a neighbouring business, our uh, residents, to live beside a particularly a derelict building, but even a boarded up building. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it affects your mental health, you know. It does, you know. It makes you... You know, you affects your sense of place and your well-being, and like I said, it makes the place feel less safe. And I always feel so sorry for for the kids who, like I said, who are in these temporary accommodation and they're passing these derelict boarded up houses on their way to school. And what does that tell us as a society? You know, mm. and why how for them growing up in that kind of environment? But you're right; it does impact the neighbours. There's so many people yeah. who simply look after their properties so well, who are so proud of where they live, and I think. It's something that, that became normalised, Patricia, in Ireland. And it's something now, thankfully, with the campaign over the last three years, with Jude and I, you know, everyone across the country who's got involved, community support has been amazing to us, actually. You know, as people all over Ireland sharing images now and challenging this. Which, which, is, change, which is good. And, and, that's, and the more we talk about it, the more, the more hopefully things will be done. I know Cork City Council, uh, they uh, say that they brought back into use 404 empty council properties, which they call voids. That's since uh, two years ago, since July of uh, 2020. And they also say they've initiated 10 notices of intention to acquire compulsory purchase uh, since July of 2020. Right. But 10 really, with the numbers you're talking about, 10 really isn't enough, um, Frank. And I know, and like two of those ones that I mentioned in the article, like I've been documenting those now for over three years, three and a half years, and uh, they're going dis- to it's a state of disrepair now, the ones on Little John Street that I mentioned in the article. I mean, actually, Willem says they're t- two three-story buildings. Willem's now down to a story. It's been falling away over time. The council had to knock it because the owners wouldn't do anything with it. Yeah, but like, they are now t- at a state that it's too late to CPO, Patricia. Yeah, They'll have to be not probably taken demolished. down. Demolished. 
And it's yeah. and it's it is and I and I know from you, um, uh, Frank, for you and Jude, it it really troubles you to see any building being demolished. Oh, it does because I mean, I suppose we are experts in sustainability. We work all over the world, governments and stuff, and on, on these issues and stuff. And the most sustainable is existing. We need to use what we have. And also, like in Ireland, it frustrates me. A lot of people don't recognise that we have these wonderful buildings going back hundreds of years. In Cork City, for example, some of the buildings that are decaying onto the ground, Patricia, are two, three hundred years old. Now, if you were living in the Netherlands, any building pre-World War II, they look after they value it. We're here in Ireland, we let it come to the ground. And like I said, it's, it's about the resources, it's about the heritage since the place. And like, I suppose I didn't realise it, Patricia, until I came back and she likewise how lucky we are in Ireland to have these wonderful architectural heritage buildings, you know, but we have to look after them. They're a sense of place, they're where we've come from, you know. And, yeah, help and us it's, it's too late then when we bemoan the fact when all we have is a photograph of a building that exactly. uh, was, one, was once there. Um, so uh, just to finish off, do, do the City Council, Frank, do they simply need more funding to return some of these properties to use? Well, I think there's there's obviously we have to recognise the local authorities in Ireland are, are, are the most poorly funded across Europe, so they definitely don't have enough funding. No, in fairness as well, you know, there it, it, it's a big ask. Things have gone so badly, so we are starting off in a bad, very very poor way. But ultimately, there also has to be cultural changes as well. I mean, they, they have to, I suppose, look at how they do business. And I think what the local authorities really need is to collect the dereliction, do a full data audit of the city find out exactly what buildings are derelict and vacant, etc. And they really start enforcing the law. Because Patricia alone, if they, if they charge a 7% on every property that's derelict, collected that funding, put it together to build up a team, and that team then could go out there and start doing something about it. So people, so we really need a kind of one-stop shop. So so definitely they need more resources, but they also need to change the mindset. Okay. And they need to look at it differently and see it as potential. And also somewhere that people can live in. There are people like us who want to live in these open environments and we need to make it easy for everyone from an eight to an eight-year-old to have a place where they can live in. Okay, well said, Frank. We leave it there. Thank you for that. We will speak again and best wishes to Jude as well. But thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, Frank O'Connor, campaigner on a dereliction. And I think probably his most important statement that he made was when he said, you know, the most sustainable building is the existing one. We need to protect the ones that are there. Now, following on from last year's hugely successful event, the fifth Galley Head Swim is back for 2023 and the date is set for Saturday, the 22nd of July. To preview this year's swim, I'm joined by one of the organisers and that is Justin Crowley. Uh, Good morning to you, Justin. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Well, you're welcome. I suppose start with the details of the swim first. And this is, I take it you would describe it as quite an intensive swim, isn't it? It's an intensive swim um, for the solo swimmers. They'll cover about 10 kilometres in, you know, currents and some choppy conditions. But so far, we've had very calm weather on the day of the swim. But you can't expect to have calm weather every year. So it is a good challenge, you know. Okay, how many will take part? We have 161 swimmers in total. Um, we opened it up in February and within 24 hours it was sold out. We just <laughs> closed it again, you know. Now you say, so, so, a, you say solo swimmers, there's relays as well, isn't there? Yes, there's 20 solos and, and there's 40 relay teams then comprising of two, three and four per relay. 
and you leave it up to and, the people at the relay how much they do or don't do, is it? Exactly. They can jump in and jump out. It's a charity swim. It's not a race. We keep stressing that. So people do it. It's a, it's a fun day out as well, you know. And it's a good sense of achievement to think that you've taken a part in one of the most iconic swims in the country and you've achieved to get around the galley head, cross a couple of beaches and finish up in the Warren in Ross Carberry. So it's a fantastic challenge, you know. Yeah, and as you say, it, it's a tw- 10 uh, k- kilometres. Um, I was surprised to hear you say how quickly, when you opened up registration, how quickly it uh, filled. Um, I mean, they're not all local swimmers then? They're not all local swimmers, uh, but we have a lot of repeat swimmers. You know, they're waiting. When is it opening? When is it opening? And then their friends want to get in. And so the, the word is spreading nicely. So you have people coming from all over the country, do you reckon? Oh, uh, we have someone from South Africa this year. Oh. We have an American and there's a few Europeans and, and, and there's a few around, from around the country. Well done. A lot of local people as well. Yeah, you're, get, you're, you're getting a good reputation, as you say, not only for a good swim, uh, but a good day out. Now, one of the reasons that you're joining us uh, so well in advance of uh, the swim, for safety reasons, Justin, you need boats. Tell me what you're looking for. Yeah, we need about, in total, about 70 boats. Um, today, we have about 60, which is fantastic. And congratulations to all the skippers who volunteered their boat, their money and their time. But we're still short about 10 boats um, to accompany swimmers. Um, so we're, the appeal is out to anybody with a boat that would like a day out, help three worthy charities and, and do their bit for the charities as well, which would be fantastic. So ideally a rib, is it, is, is it a rib you're looking for? Rib a rib, uh, even you can have um, 20 foot boats as well, uh, fishing boats, um, not big yachts, okay. uh, we don't want any um, super yachts coming, <laughs> they're a bit too big. <laughs> you can leave them parked in Crosshaven. Um, okay, so a, a five metre rib, I'm told, would, would be ideal. So the, the idea is that each swimmer or each relay team, I take it, has their own boat. That's the safety aspect, is it? Is that how you do yes, it? Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. they're not allowed in the water without their own boat. So um, luckily, the last four years, we've managed to get enough boats, you know, and at the 11th hour. But we still need the appeal. We still need people to volunteer. And, yeah. You know, it, it is a great day out. And they would, the commitment would be you're there for the for the entire day, is it? Or full day? Yes, yeah. 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 This is the, as I mentioned, the introduction, Justin, the fifth year of the event. Has it really grown over the years? Oh, it's fantastic. It's um, it's become one of these swims now that people want to be a part of. But we had to we had to put a limit on it. And like the charities that we're, we're raising money for too is just, it's it's the key. It's the whole reason for doing it. Um, and this year we introduced two new charities, um, Coaction and um, the Cancer Connect. Do you know? And it's always and Marymount is still pretty. And Marymount is, is, our, is our base. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Marymount Cancer Connect, wonderful organisation and co-action. Everybody in West Cork knowing how fantastic uh, they are. So people enter, they pay a fee to enter. Is it is is that how you raise the money? Yeah, yeah. They pay a fee to enter, um, but ideally they do fundraisers themselves, and the entry fee is only the minimum, and they usually raise double, if not three times, what the entry fee is. So. People are fantastic, you know, they've come up with novel ideas of raising money, like there's bingo and there's swim in the dawn, swim with yoga and stuff like that. So people are putting in a great effort. That's you know? incredible. And how much do you, how much did you raise last year, for example? Last year, it was, I think it was about 90,000, I think. It was short, yeah. It's incredible, isn't it, was, it? Would you expect the same this year, hopefully? There or thereabouts is, is fantastic. All going well, yeah. That's a terrific sum the, of money. Uh, 
The year before it was much higher, it was about 116, but there was very little on that year and people were really bursting to get out to do something. <laughs> so I think 80 or 90,000 shirts. It's, it's amazing, yeah, amazing it's... for a one day charity event, you know. And Justin, sea swimming has become really popular, hasn't it? Especially in recent times. I think COVID actually was one of the, uh, was a big push towards sea swimming. Well, it was, and it's free, and it is dangerous. So ideally, you should get lessons first. And there's a lot of swim coaches now in West Cork giving lessons to people, which is ideal. You know, That's why we have so many swimmers coming on stream. Yeah, and there are people that go out every single day, you know, not just summertime. They're out there in, in the wilds of winter uh, as well. OK, if there's anybody out there with, with a rib or a small boat that can help you out, Justin, how can you be contacted? Uh, we can contact it on the Facebook page um, directly or we have a website as well, uh, Gallyhead Swim. Or my own number is around the place as well. Um, so email, contact us on Facebook or my own number is, is readily available. So okay. the more the merrier, the and more the, safer as well. And then on the day itself, as, as you say, you're full for swimmers. You can't take any more swimmers. But on the day itself, people can turn out to watch and see what's going on. Oh, absolutely. Um, and on the finish line, then we usually do a barbecue. There's music going and the whole family are there to greet their swimmers back. So it's a bit of a carnival atmosphere at the end, you know. And so we'll, people are welcome to that too. I mean, have charity buckets on the day that people can donate to. And we'll keep the fingers crossed and we'll get the, ch- the Child of Prague statues out that it will be a fine sunny day. And you don't want it too hot or too sunny either, though. Sure you don't. Oh, we'll take hot and sunny. Will you? Pinty <laughs> <laughs> fluid. Pinty fluid. Okay. We'll, fine, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a fine sunny day on Saturday, the 22nd of July. Listen, Justin, good luck to everybody uh, in, involved. It's a fantastic event and I know it's going to be as successful as previous years. But uh, thank you for taking time out to join us. And will you be taking a dip yourself, Patricia? Oh, God, which I'm not the best swimmer in the world now, Justin. I'll come down and wave you on from the from the... From the shoreline. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next year. So Maybe, Maybe next, next year. I go into training now. I'll start the training. Mind we'll, yourself, Justin. We'll have the, one, we'll have the 103 relay team. That's it. That's it. I can see John Paul signing up already. All right, Justin. Mind yourself. Take care. Take Thanks, care. Justin Crowley. Get him off the line quick before he signs us up. That is Justin Crowley ahead of this year's Galley Head Swim. Good luck, as I say, to all 161 swimmers. But if there's anybody out there with a boat, small, rib, rib, small boat, that would like to help out because three very worth while charities will benefit Marymount Hospice, Cancer Connect and Coaction in uh, West uh, Cork. 0818-103-103. Actually, just staying on Marymount, I saw a text in, if I can find this in earlier from uh, Jim. Last week, we were again talking about Marymount Hospice with regard to a fundraiser and it was with, with regard to the Canturk Mart being turned over into a concert venue last uh, Saturday night and wonderful, wonderful array of uh, talent. And, and I remember thinking when I would Bernard Moynihan joining me in studio, I don't think I'd ever advertised a an animal march to be used for a concert venue. So it, it, was a, it was a bit of fun. Anyway, the fundraiser went ahead last uh, Saturday night and by all accounts, it was a huge, huge success. And Jim is wondering if we can find out how much did they raise? And, and I will, I will um, find out uh, for you, Jim, because he says there was so much talent on show from the Johallow area and Elmery O'Dwyer was a great MC on the night and actually sang three songs. And he said Breed Stack was a surprise guest on the night telling of her sporting career with Cork when her musical career didn't take off. 
even though she had Liam O'Connor teaching her. Well done to everyone who made the concert happen. And also, says Jim, the mart was looking so well, all painted up. Maybe it could become an annual event, says uh, Jim. Maybe you might get back on to Bernard uh, Moylehan to find out what did they raise, but at the same time to find out if there's any more plans to make this an annual event or indeed if there's any more plans to have future concerts because it was a great venue and a great setting, says our Jim, uh, who went along to that special night for Marymount at Canturk March. This week's um, Hours to Protect feature, which we run on Friday mornings at about 11.40, Joanna Dupati from Good Day Cork uh, will talk with us about an upcoming zinc an upcoming zinc project that aims to discuss diverse stories from nature. Uh, so looking forward to that on Friday morning if you tune in to Ours to Protect. As I say, that's at about, at about 11.40. Now, some of your thoughts and comments coming in. Firstly, a response from the council to something that came up yesterday. We had some calls in about the Castle Park playground in Mallow. New resurfacing work going on in there. People have been led to believe that the playground was going to reopen on the 16th of June, the 16th of June came and went and the park is still closed and obviously we're today is I think the last day for a lot of schools some schools finished up last Friday but others uh, went for the three days of, of this week so a, I think today might be I don't think there's anybody in school after today but anyway it's a school holiday time so parents want to bring their children to the park we get on to the council, the council and they have come back to us to say that the contractor carrying out that resurfacing work encountered unfortunately a delay so they've now confirmed that the contractor believes the works will be complete by Thursday next, the 6th of July. Now, that is weather permission. They're putting down a new um, surface and we're told that this new surface is going to be much more robust. So families should notice a big difference at the Castle Park playground in Mallow. But now we're looking at the 6th of July. And by the way, we're still awaiting a response from the old court cemetery in Donnerill that we got contacted about this morning. They haven't come back to us on that one uh, yet. On traffic and road safety that we spoke about earlier on on the programme, Billy in Carrigaline said, while people are talking about road safety and drink driving, driving while on a mobile phone, According to Billy and Carrigaline, he feels it's much more dangerous. He spends a lot of time travelling on the roads and he said the amount of people that he witnesses driving while looking down. He said no one is looking ahead anymore. He said at least a guy after two pints will make sure he keeps his eyes on the road. The same can't be said for people who insist on using their mobile phone or texting or reading their mobile phone. If something on their mobile phone, absolute lunacy. Stephen Amado says dangerous on our roads. Could the Gardaí please stop young people? travelling the wrong way on bicycles and electronic scooters in the town of Mallow. Surely that is an accident waiting to happen. Michael says, Hi Patricia, I didn't hear all of your interview with your road safety expert this morning, but I must text to say I agree with one of your previous listeners who contacted you about people walking out across the street in front of traffic and they don't even look up and down. The driver is always in the wrong. Road safety needs everyone on board to keep people safe. The narrowing of streets with new footpath layouts in Bandon is crazy. There are a number of spots in town where accidents are waiting to happen. One that comes to mind is the new library corner in in Bandon. 
It is crazy, says uh, Michael. And Paula says, we have shared spaces here in the square in Dungarvan. Both driver and pedestrian have equal rights to slow down and observe. But guess what? Pedestrians just walk out in front of cars. Total minefield and visitors don't have a chance. We do have pedestrian crossings, but why wait for the lights to change when you're king of the shared space? And that's from Paula in Dungarvan. Someone else says walking facing the traffic, Patricia, isn't always safe. If you're out and about and there's no footpath, you need to walk where it's safe. And that is no matter what side of the road. But I thought the advice was always to walk facing the oncoming traffic. According to this listener, it isn't. You walk wherever it is safest for you. And Noreen in Clonakilty says, just want to say well done to that lady that you spoke to about road safety. That was Susan Gray of the organisation Park. I am 100% behind her, says uh, Noreen. And yeah, Susan Gray is really, really powerful uh, speaker. And she actually founded that organisation Park Road uh, Safety Group. And that was following the she lost her husband in 2004 her husband was killed in a rural area in, in on the Inishowen Peninsula in County Donegal you may remember the case from 2004 he was a taxi driver and he was actually struck by a van he got out of his car to assist a passenger who was getting out of the taxi on the rural road obviously an elderly person needed a bit of help of help and he was unfortunately hit by this van that was passing. He was flung 45 feet into a field and the driver who struck him was an unaccompanied learner uh, driver uh, who was later prosecuted and fined €470 for failure to have an L plate and not to have an up-to-date tax disc. Uh, So you can see why Susan is so powerful on learner drivers and unaccompanied learner drivers and wanting to encourage learner drivers to get their tests and, and pass their driving test and learn to drive and learn to drive safely. And because of the death of her husband and in his memory, then she set up the group Park and began campaigning, among other things, for mandatory testing of drivers involved in accidents. Because at the time, the learner driver who struck her husband, he wasn't tested for alcohol or drugs because there wasn't a requirement at the time. So she won on that one because that ultimately became law law about two years after her husband died. So, yes, she is a powerful, powerful speaker, but she is somebody, I think, Whenever I speak to Susan, we need to listen to her because she's the living example of what it is like to have to pick up the pieces and carry on once your loved one has been killed on our roads. 0818 103 103. Ryan Tuberty and RTE still getting in a lot of commentary on uh, this. I don't know when this particular uh, issue is is going to die down. And certainly I think with the Oireachtas Media Committee meeting today, and actually we have one of our own on that committee from West Cork, uh, Christopher O'Sullivan. So we're hoping to speak with Christopher tomorrow to see how the committee meeting goes today. And then we have the PAC uh, tomorrow. And are we going to get any answers out of either of those committees? I don't know. But just the latest from RTE, because a number of people are saying that uh, Ryan Tuberty is, you know, he's off air at the moment. Now, that's not his choice. He, The, the last we heard from Ryan Tuberty, he was disappointed, actually, that RTE took him off air and he can't wait to get back on air. But he's off air at uh, the moment. But a lot of people are saying, does that mean that he still gets uh, paid? And I'm assuming he probably does because it's RTE's decision. It's not that he's not turning up for work. They've asked him not to turn up 
up for work. But RT wanted to point out that Ryan Tuberty is actually currently out of contract with the broadcaster. Um, having left the Late Late Show, the, pre- the presenter's contract was negotiated in, in 2020 and that contract was a five-year contract so that should take him up to 2025. But they say when he left the Late Late Show before that contract ended, that technically meant that that contract then was finished. So negotiations had started since when he left the Late Late or when he announced he was leaving the Late Late. So new negotiations had started for obviously for him to sign up a new contract that would just have responsibilities for uh, radio. But RTE say now that those contract co- contract talks have been paused. <laughs> We would expect that they have been uh, paused. Will they continue? I don't know because some people say he won't come back from this and he won't be back on RTE. But I suppose only time will uh, tell. Hi Patricia, says Mary. Wolf Tone once said, the most corrupt country in the world is Africa. He said the next most corrupt country country is Ireland. How right he was. And I have no, uh, I, was, I had no awareness that Wolf Tone once said that, according to Mary, he did. Dennis says, Ryan Tuberty burying his head in the sand and saying he didn't know. I'm sure if his money had taken a dip, he'd be onto it like a shot. The whole thing is a fiasco. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool, fool all of the people all of the time, says our uh, Dennis. And then on uh, WhatsApp, hi Patricia, why were those special payments not spotted by the auditors before now? Uh, will that be questioned uh, regarding previous years, says uh, Una. You see, I'm assuming what will come out of that is the auditors will say it was there, but it was there as far as I know under consultancy fees, it just didn't have Ryan Tuberty's name on it. So it wasn't that the auditors didn't spot it or that there was any cover up by the auditors. It was just the auditors didn't know that it was linked to Ryan Tuberty and they wouldn't. It was just a and I think I think it was declared. I read somewhere as consultancy fees, and then it was just passed along to uh, Ryan Tuberty, Tina in or Tim in Malice. Sorry, Tim. Morning, uh, Patricia. RTE are paying the presenters too much, plain and simple. The TV license should be reviewed and distributed between all of our TV, radio, and newspapers that provide a public service. RTE would then be forced to stand on their own feet and uh, the market for presenters and journalists, it would regulate itself. So leave it all go to the market, whereas they can top up because they have, they, they're out there commercially, RTER. I mean, they're up against all of us radio stations and other TV stations uh, like uh, Virgin Media. So they're out there fighting for ads. But of course, they have the backup of this chunk of money that they get from the TV licence every year. So yeah, let the market then, uh, Tim is saying, dictate how much somebody is worth or not. Now I can see some questions there. Gardening questions for Peter. Thank you for all of those. Keep those coming, please, because Peter Dowdell will be uh, joining us uh, in a little while on the programme. So if you have a gardening question, Question 0818 103 103. John Paul is taking those calls, but you can text our WhatsApp in a gardening question to 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. 
cool sportswear are inviting people to climb Caron Tuil on Saturday the 8th of July and it's to raise funds for the Association of Ukrainians in Ireland. For dedicated cyclists, there's an opportunity to cycle from O'Brien Street in Mallow to Caron Tuil. Cyclists will leave Mallow at 6am in the morning from the Mallow Print Works on O'Brien Street and then the climb for Caron Tuil will start at 10.30 that morning and then cyclists leave for the return journey at 4 in the afternoon. To register or if you'd like to donate, you can email marketing at coolsports.ie or you can call in to Mallow Printworks on O'Brien Street in uh, Mallow. And the ISPCC still looking for volunteers for their Childline Listening Service to work at its office in Cork. Childline, as we know, offer 24-7 listening services free and confidential and can be reached online or by phone. If you would like to volunteer can you please contact volunteer recruitment at ispcc.ie. An exhibition of photography, performance and film will be held this Friday, half past six in the Chapel Hill School of Art and that's in McCroom. And Kaylee Sets will go on in the Marion Hall in Ballonhasic also on Friday night dancing to Tim Joe and Anne from 9.30. And Crean Alanoff annual commemoration is taking place on Friday night at 8. It's remembering the 102nd anniversary this year. The oration is to be given by Tim O'Reardon from Natural Gas. Music and refreshments will be served at a Donovan's Bar in Ballinagree and all are very welcome. Court Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Just on a completely different uh, issue, my apologies to John and Mallow that I'm only getting to this uh, now. John had to spend some time at Cork University Hospital lately. He said he was nine hours in the emergency department on one day and then a few days later he ended up back in the emergency department where he spent a further eight hours uh, in there. He said many people could have gone to Mallow General Hospital or to Bantry General Hospital the people that were there from West uh, Cork but of course as we now know everything is centralised into the city. This has been highlighted for so many years but people continue to suffer. He said a man he knows was admitted yesterday at half past three and he said he's checked this morning and that man is still sitting in a chair in the A&E department waiting on a bed and by the way he hasn't been given any food and he's been there since half past three yesterday. Uh, John Amado said he's simply not good enough he said when he was on the two occasions he was in the emergency department he said he actually witnessed families coming in and just taking loved ones home. They just didn't get uh, treated at all. We have so many ministers in Cork. Why is this uh, continuing? Yes, the UH is a bottleneck for sure. And actually, there's another issue that ties in with that, with um, with CUH. And this is to do, Dennis and Castle Magna was on. This was to do with the report that came out. And I know I remember uh, talking about it, about the number of outside consultants. Now, I'm not talking about hospital consultants. I'm talking about people who are brought in to take a look at the running of the hospital, the admin or, you know, how rostered are done or whatever it is outside consultancy firms are brought in uh, for and uh, Dennis obviously was reading the same article to say it's incredible to think the number of people they are hiring why are they hiring all of these outside expertise does it mean that the managers working within the HSE or within the hospitals are not doing their jobs correctly it is a total waste of money but again it's money coming out of the public purse if you look at all the managers within the HSE and the wages they are on and how their wages 
wages have increased uh, over the years. It's not the ordinary workers on the floor like the nurses and the porters and the kitchen staff and the nurses assistants. They're not all on big money. It is, a, is it not the very same as in RTE and what's happening with Ryan Tuberty. There is an old phrase, Patricia, that says you can have all the money in the world but if you haven't your honour you have nothing. Ooh, there's harsh words uh, for Ryan Tuberty. And then somebody was on saying, Patricia what would happen if you didn't pay your TV a licence? And I, I said you'd end up in court. So I said that I'd try and look in and look into and find out how many people have ended up in court for not paying their TV licence. And lo and behold the figures have just been released for this year. More than 3,500 people have ended up in court so far this year. That's only for this year in 2023 for failure to pay a TV licence. The Department of Media were advised by OnPost and of course the reason they're advised by OnPost is the OnPost is responsible for the TV licence fee uh, collection and enforcement and they say 5,073 summonses were applied and that was for the first five months of this year up to the end of May and out of that 3,513 souls had to attend in a court on Posse. 43% of the TV licence database is made up of free TV licences. I think it's people over the age of 70, isn't it, are entitled to a free TV licence or is it at 66 you get the free TV licence? Anyway, so 46% get a TV licence are their homes that don't have a uh, TV and of course that is a growing concern because of the fall, falling number of people that are paying households that are actually paying a TV licence. Now the Irish Consumers Association Policy and Council Advisor Dermot Jewell who regularly talks to us on uh, the programme. He says that the vast majority of failures to pay the TV licence, which as he pointed out is legally required he says literally it is down to affordability we are living in a cost of living uh, crisis. He also says there is a growing sentiment that questions value for money and he says you always will have the can't pays and the won't pays but he said that he can't help but feel that considering the exit after COVID and all of the elements associated with inflation in recent years he says a lot of this people not paying their TV licence is simply down to affordability they don't have the money Dermot Jewell believes recent statements um, on various salaries within the organisation he also feels that that is impacting customers' views on the value that they are getting for paying their licence. Dermot Jewell expects licence payers to start contrasting their earnings with those highlighted in the news this week in the context of struggles to afford rent and food and transport. He says RTE is going to have a big, big task ahead of it to outline the importance of how it is going to spend that money and how the fee will be used to the best advantage of those who must uh, pay it. And actually I spotted that um, Christopher O'Sullivan, who I, I mentioned is going to be joining us tomorrow because he's on that Oireachtas Media Committee. He said the TV licence holders are deeply angry with the abuse of uh, public trust within uh, RTE. And can I say, Christopher, that is putting it mildly. But I would have to agree with uh, Dermot Jewell. I mean, if you are really strapped for cash 
and the TV licence bill comes in and you have to pay €160 and you also have to put food on the table or there's an electricity bill or there's a gas bill in. You can fully understand why people are going to pay other bills or put food on the table before they'll rush to the post office to pay the €160. But what happens is the people that get caught and the three and a half thousand odd people that have ended up in court, I guarantee you, they are people who paid their TV licence in the past because that's what happens once you get on the database when you don't pay it, you'll get a knock on the door from somebody saying just very gentle reminder to you, you need to pay your TV licence. And if you don't respond and do anything, that then you get a letter in the post saying this is your final, final warning. And if you don't answer that one, you then will have the Gardaí knocking at your door to say you've been uh, summonsed uh, to court. So, and it, But the households that have never paid a TV licence, they're not on the database at the moment, but it's the households who paid in the past. They, unfortunately, are the poor souls that get dragged before the courts. Now, what happens when you go before the courts? I mean, it would be interesting. I haven't in a long time seen a report in the paper of a judge sending someone to jail. I did hear of somebody um, recently who ended up in Mount Joy for a few hours, but it turned out it was some kind of a mistake. I still didn't get to the bottom uh, of that. But a number, about three and a half thousand people, that's so far this year and nobody really wants uh, to end up before the courts. But certainly this week, since this whole debacle, since last Thursday, it isn't even a week since we found out about the whole secret hiding of payments to uh, Ryan Tuberty. The amount of calls that John Paul has received and the amount of texts and WhatsApps I've received from people saying they're not going to pay their TV uh, licence again. But you do run the risk of ending up in court. And I think that will frighten people into paying your uh, TV licence. And thank you to Dan in Mallow says you get a free TV licence at the age of 70. Thank you. I didn't. I thought I was wondering, did it come with your old age pension or your state pension at 66? It doesn't. It comes at 70. Thank you for that clarification. Dan in Mallow. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And uh, Peter Dowdle, theirishgardener.com, uh, joining me on this Wednesday afternoon as the sun starts to shine, which I have to say was, is what the forecast is. It's going to brighten up for the afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon. I hope it does. I hope the sun does start to shine. I'm, I'm soon after I'll be talking to you, I'll be taking a walk around the Wildlife Park and Photo where we're looking oh. at. Um, all the wonderful natural connections between plants and animals. So it'll be a nicer walk in the sun than the rain. Yeah, I had them on last week to celebrate their 40th, their open 40 years. It's hard to believe they're going 40 years, isn't it? It really is. And I remember well, my mum was very involved in the fundraising to develop it back in the day and to suddenly think that that's 40 years ago. Yeah. My God. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and it's one of our big, big success stories, uh, certainly here yes, in Cork. Yes, certainly is. OK, and now John Paul says we he's had a number of calls and we're getting emails and texts in all about the same thing. And it's to do with uh, Grisolinia Hedge dying off. And I know we had an email with a really good photograph of it uh, last week of just a portion in the middle of a hedge uh, dying off. And can you talk for the the other people now are discovering the Grisolinia hedge dying off and what they need to do. I knew I knew when we had that call last week, I knew it would it would lead to perhaps not quite the amount of calls that you've got, but I knew that it would resonate because a lot of people, and I'm seeing it myself from my own job, calling to people's gardens that um, a lot of people have this problem where hedges, mature hedges are dying off. Either random plants are kind of like the photograph that came in last week, larger areas are dying off. And it's caused, unfortunately, by root, a root rot. It's very most likely phytophthora root rot, which is, a, they're all fungal infections. And they're caused 
I suppose you could really just put it down to our climate. It's very damp and warm weather, but in particular, they're 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 caused by a soil-borne fungus, which in poor drained soils or compacted soils uh, leads to the spread of it. And that winter we've just come through, uh, so last I think personally, I think the first of October last year, uh, nearly through to March of this year, we nearly had rain every day. I know that I know that's not a completely true but we certainly had a very very wet winter which does lead to these conditions particularly if your your soil is poor draining or if it's compacted underneath the hedge it really does lead to the ideal conditions for the development of these root rots uh, and unfortunately that's what we're seeing what can you do unfortunately very little it's bad news when when a hedge does get something like one of these fungal infections it's it's a question of you need to remove the dead material the soil around it and if, as in the the, 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 the the photograph we looked at last week, if it's a large portion of the hedge, I'd nearly recommend removing the entire hedge and, and, and putting in fresh soil and starting with a, a less susceptible variety, trying to improve the drainage around the, the root zone of the hedge um, and, and, and look for varieties which are less susceptible. Unfortunately, the Grisinia is very susceptible, uh, which is bad news because so many of our hedges and mature hedges at this stage in Ireland are Grisinia. So... I don't have great news, I'm afraid, except to, if it's only one plant, let's say maybe remove that one plant, or if you're just seeing a small bit of dieback in a plant, cut it back very hard. Uh, treat it, treat the area with, with copper sulfate mixed with water, which is my kind of go-to weapon, if you like, with fungal infections. Um, drench the soil with the solution of copper sulfate and water. Cut off or remove any existing plants that are that are diseased or damaged. And... Um, and, and then treat the whole hedge with uh, with a good plant food to kind of build its resistance, if you like. But also, probably more importantly, put plenty of organic matter in around the base of the hedge. It could be homemade compost, wood chips, anything like this, which will in turn improve the, the, the structure of the soil and hopefully improve drainage around that area. But um, if, it, if, it, if, the, if the problem is widespread and taken over a large part of the hedge, I'm afraid it's, it's bad news. Yeah, because somebody is asking, does it spread once it starts in a hedge? Is that what happens? It spreads to the other part of the hedge? Yes, is yeah. the answer. Most of, the, most of them spread by rain spatter, which is why the, the spread will be quite local. But obviously it can spread then from plant to plant. Uh, so yes, is the answer to that. Okay, Maura says, how do I deadhead my petunias? Do I have to nip the star shape as well as the dead flower? And if I don't deadhead them, will it make any difference? Well, yes, yes, it will make a difference because the more you deadhead them. So the star shape that she's referring to at the base of the petals, if you like, that's where the seed is. So what will happen is that the, the energy that's coming up through the root system into the plant will go into seed production. Whereas if you pinch off that seed head, uh, the energy instead will go into producing more flowers. So yeah, it does make a difference. So I would say when you're when you're deadheading them, yeah, certainly you take the star bit at the base off as well. But I'd even go a bit further, pinch back to the the nearest node, which is where the leaf meets the stem. So so pinch back a good bit, uh, and and then you will get more flowers in as a result of that. Yeah, because if you don't deadhead, you're not going to get as many. New flowers. No, you're yeah. certainly not. No, no. Uh, Lily, Lillian says, hi, could you ask, ask Peter, please, uh, allowing the flowers to bloom on potato stalks, does that take from the development of the potatoes? Well, well when the flowers are, are blooming, uh, at this time of the year, if they're blooming, it's your early potatoes. So it, that, that's a sign that it's time to harvest. So, yeah, it does take from the vigour of the plant. So, yeah, when, when, the, when, the, when the potato plants flower, that's the time to dig them up. 
Hi, Peter. How do you get rid of horses' mane weed in a polytunnel? It's destroying the veg and it keeps growing back as fast as it's been pulled up. I'm, I'm, get, I'm going to guess here from horses' mane that they, they, they're talking maybe about horse tail or mare's tail, which is a, an equisetum. Equisetum are events, I think. Um, which is, a, I'm afraid, another curse of a problem. It's a, it, there, you, you don't eradicate it. You don't get rid of it, I'm afraid. You, we, we learn to live with it. It's, it's been with us since the time of the dinosaurs, so I don't think anything that we can do is, is going to, to eradicate it. Um, so it's a question of working with it. Now, keep pulling it, and yes, it does re-emerge when you pull it, but keep pulling it, and you will weaken it. It tends not to be a bully of a weed, if you know what I mean. So there's, provided now we're talking about the same plant, I'm talking about mare's tail, uh, it, it tends to colonize ground that isn't being worked. So in other words, if you're constantly put, it, you, in other words, you tend not to see it as a problem on lawns because it's constantly being cut. So it'll spread elsewhere. The root system will spread underground and it'll emerge elsewhere where it has less competition and it's being less challenged. So the more you pull it and the more you cut it, the the more likely it is to move. But unfortunately, in a, in a controlled environment like a polytunnel it's going to love it and it's going to keep trying to stay there but but really there is no answer except trying to trying to keep pulling it keep cutting it if it's practical and it's not always practical when you're growing veg but if it's practical put some kind of a mulch some kind of a material over it i'm not normally a fan of these ground cover mulches but in this case it it, it could be good because it'll cut off light to it so it'll kind of force it to spread maybe outside of the tunnel um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult one to control in that situation, I'm afraid. OK, keep at it. Hi, uh, Peter. How often should you uh, use plant food for flowers in a pot? And could you suggest a plant food that would be sufficient for most? The, if you're growing plants in pots, obviously, the, they, they have a, a very finite amount of nutrients. So feeding does become important. And if, if which, which I'm going to assume here, that if it's, a, if it's kind of a pot full of summer flowering plants like your petunias which we were talking about a second ago if it's a pot full of summer flowering plants the best plant food to use would be a good quality tomato food um and i would use it probably about every 10 days because the tomato food you see is is rich in phosphorus and potassium two of the elements which are very necessary for flower production uh, or they help with the development of flowers so it's not just for tomatoes. So if it's if it's a pot full of flowers that you want, well, then I would use a good quality tomato food and about every 10 days. If it's something more general, like if it's a shrub or something that you're growing in a, in a pot from year after year, look for any good quality seaweed feed. Uh, again, a liquid one will be absorbed more quickly. Nature Safe, the Irish brand, do a good liquid seaweed feed. Uh, you could look for that one, but any good liquid seaweed feed will, will do. OK, and I'm assuming others are have the same problem as Mary. Hi, uh, Patricia and Peter. How can I revive burnt patches on my lawn after the recent dry spell? I'd be very surprised if you need to do anything because lawns are very, very forgiving in that, that they can look very brown and very black, or sorry, not but very brown or kind of straw-coloured uh, after a period of drought like we had. But then as soon as we get rains like we're getting now at the moment, it should bounce back all on its own. Uh, don't feed it because you'll you'll risk just drying it out even more and burning it. So just just leave nature take its course. I'd be very very surprised if it didn't. My own lawn, I had put down a patch of new lawn myself last autumn, uh, and it did it did suffer a lot of stress over the heat that we had recently. But it's coming back now, perfect. So uh, I would do nothing. Leave nature fix it if you like with the rain. I'd say it'll be fine. If it's not, 
then it's more likely not drought damage or you have a more you have an underlying issue there maybe with compacted soil or something but i would i would say in a week or two's time it would probably be pardon the fun now but right as rain okay all right mary and i'm assuming predictive text has changed the war because it says my davies <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it's my dahlias in pots look as if they're dead will they ever come back I'm going to assume it's Dahlia's yeah. too, but obviously I don't know. And without seeing the photograph, it's a difficult, it's an impossible one to answer really. Um, because because plants suffer kind of what's called temporary wilting point, which they'll come back from, and a permanent wilting point, which obviously enough they don't come back from. So without seeing it, it's very difficult to say, I'm afraid. But maybe send John Paul in a picture and we can look at it next week or, or yeah. send me in a picture on, on Facebook to the Irish Gardener and I'll have a look at it. Okay, somebody wants to know uh, what is the best machine to take out old shrubs? They've got very deep roots. They need to be removed from the garden. Uh, I was going to say a big strong man is probably the best <laughs> machine, but in, in, in today's world, I'd better say a big strong man or a woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, but if if access will allow, if you can just get a mini digger in, um, that that would be that's the best thing. There isn't a spe- there are specific machines to lift shrubs, but they're specific to the nursery industry, so you you won't hire one of them or get one of them. But uh, so in in a garden situation, if you can get a mini digger in, that that's the thing to do. Now the only thing is moving them. If you want to, if you want to keep them, if you want to save them, like let's say they've got too big for where they are but you want to lift them and plant them somewhere else in the garden. So in other words, if you want to save them, this is the wrong time of the year to do it. It's it's November to February is your window. If you're lifting them just to remove them and then time is less important, But you, so you could do it now, but a, a mini digger is what I would look for. Charlie in Whelan has, varig- has a variegated holly tree. Um, the small leaves are alive, but the wood part appears to be all dead. He feels the storms over the past year might have damaged the holly tree. It seems to be loose at the roots. Is there any possibility of saving same? Depending on how old it is, if it's loose at the roots, um, then the it could be ever since it was planted, if you know what I mean, which is why staking new trees is so important to prevent that root rock from day one. Uh, so if that's the case, you could just try restaking it now to try and anchor it in position more, you know, just physically kind of with your foot push down on the soil around it, if that's going to make a difference. Now, if that's a mature plant, that's not going to make any difference, of course. Uh, but you could still try restaking it to see if that will help. Uh, and that could well be the problem. He is right, or she is right, that that could well be the problem, that that is what has caused the leaf drop. However, it's also possible, particularly if it's a mature plant, the, the, there is holly leaf drop and there's holly leaf blight, which is fungal infections, which could also be causing it. Whether of which I probably do little enough and see if it comes back itself. Uh, but from the way he describes it, or, the, or she describes it, is if it's rocking in the ground, that, that is very possibly the problem. And the only thing to do there is to, to try restaking it. And what you're, what you're doing when you're staking any tree or large shrub, you're not staking it to stop the top of it from snapping. You're staking it to, to make sure that the root system isn't rocking in the soil. So maybe two or three stakes very firmly in the ground and tied with the rubber, ba- rubber uh, tree ties very tightly to the stake. So it's, a, it's allowing it as little movement as possible. That's what, that's what you're going to need to do. Okay, Brian in Formoy has an apple tree for two years running. It's loaded with apples, but many are falling onto the ground. They're not waiting to fully develop. Why would that be happening? Same thing happened last year. 
same the, and that is uh, because of what we were just referring to there with the lawn, the long dry spell. So when when apple and other fruit trees set their fruits kind of around April May time, um, they do need consistent moisture at that point for the fruit to develop and to stay on the tree. If we get a dry period during that per- during that time of the year, which we did and we did as well last year. Uh, that will lead to early early fruit drop, which is what's happening here. So what you've got to do to prevent it happening for next year is I would mulch around the, the base of the plant with, with again, with any organic matter, such as uh, your homemade compost, wood chip, bark mulch, put a good few inches of mulch. Be careful now not to mulch up the actual stem. You don't want the trunk of the tree to be smothered, but around the root stone, mulch it to, to help prevent water loss from evaporation uh, at that time of the year. Um, and also, if it's practical, maybe maybe actually water it every day during that period. If we get a dry spell during April and May, keep it well watered. And that will uh, help to, to, to reduce, if not to stop the problem. Bearing in mind that, of course, it's quite common and very common, in fact, for, for, for fruit trees like that, to drop a certain amount of the fruit. If, if the, the, the tree, don't laugh at me when I say this, but if the tree itself knows that it won't be able to, to bring them all to, to production, if you like, it will, it will shed some of them if it's a very heavy crop. Uh, but if it's losing nearly all of them, then it's very, very definitely the drought. Okay. Hi, Peter. My gold crest trees are looking sad. Half of the trees are brown. They're about six feet high. What seems to be the problem? Is it a disease? The rest seem okay from Margaret. This brings us back to the start of the of the of yeah. the piece, uh, Patricia. It's it's the root Same rot. Again. It's the root rot. It's Capressus gold crest. Is is uh, it's quite a nice golden conifer, but it, it again it may be phytophthora. It may be one of the other root rots, but it's that's what's causing it. It is a fungal infection. Uh, it, will it will is it salvageable? Not really. The gold crests that are affected already, I would say, get them out. Um, if it's in the middle of a line of them, it will spread. So I would I would act quite quickly to remove the diseased ones. Okay, and a final one, a hydrangea, full of leaves, no flowers. What would Peter think? There's no buds, just leaves. But the leaves are looking very healthy. I wonder, did they cut it back last year? Because yeah. if they cut it back too hard, then that, that would prevent flowering. Just for a year or two, it'll come back again. Uh, but if, if not, uh, I, would, I would go back to what we were talking about earlier with the tomato food. Give it a good, rich tomato food, because that will help to promote flowers. You'd expect them to be in bud if not open at this time of the year, but uh, it's it's still not too late to possibly get a few buds if that's what the the situ- if if it's a nutrient situation. So a good quality tomato food around the base of the plant, and that'll hopefully lead to the development of a few flowers from. Okay, so are you in photo now for the rest of the day, or? Not for the rest of the day. If anyone's around the area, call in from half one. I'll be giving a, a walk and talk around for for about an hour, uh, and it's all as I say, all about the. Just trying to, to remind ourselves about the kind of connections which happen every day, nothing to do with humans, that are that just everything that's going on. And there's some lovely, interesting connections in photo between the, as you can imagine, the wide variety of animals that are here and, and the plants that, that uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's just hard to think sometimes that in this little corner of East Cork, we have so many, yeah. such a variety and diversity of animals down here. It's fantastic. Enjoy and we'll talk to you again next week, Peter. Look forward to it. Thanks, Trish. Thank you for that. That is uh, Peter Dowdle, the Irish Gardener, uh, dot com. So that's where I have to leave you for today. My thanks to John Pack. John Paul McNamara for producing Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we will be back with you with Thursday's edition of the programme tomorrow morning at 10 on to the line Patricia Messenger very good afternoon today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie